Good evening, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh Brown. I'm the director of Young Family Ministries here at Riverbend. It's been a while since I've been able to preach, so I'm thankful for the opportunity. Um, just wanted to, I, I know there's so many new people here. This, this coming uh, Sunday, we get to celebrate uh, new members that are being introduced to the church, and there's been so many new people. Um, it's really funny because I get to tell people about my family, uh, you know, my wife and my two sons, but nobody's ever seen them. <laughs> Not nobody, but it's been a while since they've been here, so I think some people honestly look at me and think I'm pretending. <laughs> that I have a wife and children. Um, so I wanted to show you a picture, Troy. Um, and uh, th this is my wife, Victoria Grayson on the right, Wesley, who is three months old, there. Um, after I thought, let me show them a picture, I realized, well, I'm not in the picture, so it's really no proof <laughs> that they're my family. Um, but anyway, I wanted to give you a brief update because many of you probably... Uh, at least I feel very close to you because of, of your prayers for my uh, eldest son, Grayson. Uh, thank you, Troy. Um, he's, uh, he's had already two open-heart surgeries, born with a kind of a significant uh, heart uh, condition. Uh, his third one's coming up either this year or next, so just want to encourage you to uh, continue praying for that. We should get an update next week. Uh, but I just wanted to thank you. Um, it's, why I, it's why I wear the mask around here for my son uh, and his sake. But I just wanted to thank you for your continual prayers. Uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, Victoria and I could possibly express uh, what that means to us. Um, I truly believe that uh, my son is alive today as a result of the prayers of God's people. I truly believe it. I don't just say that to say it. Uh, God has used your prayers and many people's prayers to preserve his life, and uh, he's doing wonderfully. Okay? I, I, he's, at, he's at home now. He doesn't really go out because of being immune compromised, but he's doing wonderfully. just wanted to give you an update. Even though they're not here, they still uh, watch at home. Uh, sorry, Pastor Scott, his favorite is Hayward. He just says, he just says Hayward, Hayward, you know, and then when Pastor Scott comes up, he says, more Hayward. <laughs> <laughs> it's, tough to, it's tough to top Hayward, but he loves you too. He just, he just uh, you know, has, doesn't have the mind yet to track fully with these things. But I just wanted to, uh, to thank you all. Um, your prayers are appreciated. Uh, please continue to do so. I know God is doing amazing things uh, with them. Uh, so let's pray, and then we will get into our text tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your kindness. Lord, you are truly good to us. Even when it doesn't seem like that all the time, you are good. You are always good to us. Lord, we thank you so much for saving us, for giving us hope when we had no hope. Thank you for opening our eyes to the truth of your word when we could not see. We were blind to it. We couldn't hear it. We couldn't understand it apart from your grace. Thank you for that. Pray your blessing upon this time, Lord. Keep my lips from error. Lord, let your word go forth with power. May we learn great truths from it, and may we be able to apply it to our lives by the power of the Spirit, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you could open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we are going to be looking at three different passages in Acts. So we will be in Acts 2 at the start. And I didn't want to advertise the title of this uh, so that you would all show up and not run away. Um, the, the title of the the lesson tonight is just, I just, I like to title things with a question sometimes because it just provokes thought as you enter into this, um, as we enter into this text and the other ones. And it's this question, how do you respond when you're confronted with sin? How do you respond when you're confronted with sin? And, you know, just as we think of these things, 
confrontation of sin comes from many sources, right? Certainly each other, people. We are often confronted in our sin um, by those around us who love us, sometimes by those who don't love us. But we're often confronted with sin in our own conscience when we do something against God that we know is not right, maybe that nobody has ever seen. Um, We are often confronted with sin when we read the Word. Um, When you see the truth of God's Word and you see your life is not in line with it, you're confronted with sin. What do you do? How do you respond? You're confronted with sin through the preaching of God's Word. Uh, You're confronted with sin through the Holy Spirit using God's Word and other people as well. And so the big overarching question, and I just want us to think of these things because I was looking at my own life as I was reading through the book of Acts and just thinking, how do I respond? Do I respond rightly when I'm confronted with sin? So this really stems from my own personal study, and I hope it's helpful to you. We're going to read uh, Acts starting uh, in chapter 2, verses 22. This, of course, is the, uh, the time of the Pentecost. You know Peter is speaking here. Um, the Holy Spirit has just been poured out, so much so that there is different tongues being spoken, different languages being spoken, um, and some people are accusing them of being drunk. Um, some are, of course, amazed, but some are saying, oh, these people are filled with uh, wine. Peter, of course, says, no, they're actually not. This was predicted, this was uh, foretold ahead of time, and he, of course, quotes an Old Testament scripture. And then we find ourselves in verse 22. And tonight we're going to be looking at three different responses we see in Acts of how you respond to sin, and maybe we need to examine our own hearts and see where we are at with this. Starting in verse 22, it says this, this is Peter, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Skipping down briefly to, uh, or to verse 30. Sorry, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. We'll stop there. I want us to notice here the weight of this confrontation with sin. Verse 23, you see, Peter doesn't mince words. He is making an accusation. He is confronting these Jews with sin. He's saying, you nailed Jesus to the cross. You did that. In verse 36, he wants to make his statement even more clear. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I tried to imagine the weight of what that confrontation must have felt like. Certainly, We might not be able to experience that to its full extent, but I got to thinking, 
you know, what if you were called into jury duty? Everybody's favorite thing. You were called into jury duty. It was an investigation or a, a case of murder. Um, and you, along with the rest of the jurors, accused or sentenced or condemned a man and said, guilty. Right? The jurors came to, it seemed like the evidence was there. You say, you all agree, guilty. The judge hands out the death penalty. The man dies. And then years later, they find the actual killer. Right? They find the actual killer. So you, in your own mind, are thinking, whoa, I had a part in killing an innocent man. But then what if I told you that the man that you had a part in killing was sent by God? Whoa, you're starting to shrink back even more, right? If we had a part in killing somebody that was sent by God, that would scare me. Thirdly, not only is this person sent by God, it's God's own son. Do you, do you see the Israelites shrinking back kind of as this is being read? So let's look at their response. How did they respond to being confronted with this sin? We see it clearly here. It says, now when they heard this, this is verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I think it's important to read that tone in there because I think that's the tone that they had. Almost uh, exhausted, hopeless, what shall we do? We, we can't reverse what we've done. If we're guilty before God, what is there to be done? How can we make this right? And Peter, of course, answers them. And you can imagine the relief they must have felt. Because I think in asking what shall be done, they assumed there was not going to be any answer. But Peter says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, by the way, who you killed, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I want to point out some things about this response to, to sin here that I think is right and good. This is the response that we ought to have when confronted with sin. Notice, they responded to this in humility. They were pierced to the heart, which we'll compare to another statement in the next chapters, but they were pierced, and this seems to be a pain that results in sorrow. They saw their guilt. They saw they had no excuse. They saw that there was no getting around the fact that they did what they did. They responded in humility. They saw their guilt. They did not avoid it. They not only accepted it, they viewed themselves as guilty, but they didn't just stop there. They sought how they could make it right. This is, I believe, a mark of a right response to sin. How will I make this right? Not some sort of, oh, how will I make this up to you type of thing. That's not what I mean. But how can I make this right? How can I be reconciled to you? Is there any way to do it? This is a godly reaction to being confronted with sin. We can see even now the Lord working in them. And when they saw how to make it right, they acted, right? It says this, so, so then those who had received his word were baptized. They repented, they believed, they saw that there was hope. They saw that despite their guilt, there was hope offered for them. They sought how to be made right, and they acted upon it. Notice what is not in this text. Notice what is not present in their response. They did not say, whoa, 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 we got deceived. Whoa, 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 why are you pointing the, the finger at us? We didn't know what we were doing. The Lord Jesus Christ even says while he's on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
They didn't fully understand maybe what they were doing, but they didn't use that as an excuse. They knew they were guilty. They knew they needed to be made right. They didn't argue with Peter. They didn't try to justify their actions. They said, what are we to do? Tell me, is there any way I can be made right to the living God? So I got to thinking about how this applies to us. You know, we're about to look at a couple of responses to being confronted with sin that are inappropriate responses, that are uh, not godly responses um, to being confronted with sin. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you some questions as we look at this and examine our own hearts. That's the goal. I want us to examine our own hearts in our own lives and answer these questions. Do you humbly acknowledge guilt whether it be before God or others. When you are confronted with sin, whether it be in the word or by somebody else, do you humbly acknowledge the guilt? Are you quick to seek reconciliation? Or are you content with being at odds with somebody? And the worst part of that is if you're content with being at odds with God. That's a dangerous place to be. Are our hearts quick to seek reconciliation and ask, what, how can I make this right? Or do you find yourself making excuses to justify your behavior? Now this, again, can be horizontally, meaning uh, sin against other men, women, things like that. When one of them confronts you in your sin, are you quick to say, whoa, 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 I didn't, I'm sorry, but I just didn't really understand what I was doing. Or, you know, the worst apology in the world is, I'm sorry you took it that way. <laughs> you know, that basically justifies anybody saying anything mean um, and saying, oh, I'm sorry you took it that way. Do you make excuses? Do you justify your behavior? Let me, let me, Pose it to you this way. If I asked your spouse to come up on stage and give a testimony to this question, what would they say? In your marriage, when your spouse tells you about sin in your life, do you humbly accept it and seek reconciliation with God and them? I wouldn't want my own wife to be up here because I know that I've failed in this way. There are times where I've been quick to defend myself and not seek reconciliation. But only you know in your own hearts what that is like. And spouses, you know your spouse is better than anyone else. Would you want them up here giving a testimony of that? In this context, of course, that we see in Acts 2, this is talking about salvation, of course. This is talking about being made right with the living God. But I think these general uh, responses we see here can have application to how we're confronted with sin in any facet of our life. In fact, 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about this godly sorrow that leads to repentance, this godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation, right? This is a great example, I think, of godly sorrow pierced to the heart because they see their guilt. How do you respond when you are confronted with sin? Moving on, Acts 7. Flip over a couple pages to Acts 7. Verse 51 will be where we read in just a moment. We're introduced to this character, Stephen, in, verse, or in chapter 6. He is a man that is said to be full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. As Hayward mentioned earlier, he wants his son to know him as that. That's a great resume for your children to know you as, right? Full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a great way. Stephen was this man. He spoke with such great wisdom, he, he defended the faith so well that it angered them. 
And eventually he was dragged before the Sanhedrin where he gave his first and last sermon. And it's an amazing sermon. It's a tracing of Israel's history and God's faithfulness to them despite their unfaithfulness to to him. And then it culminates in verse 51. And it gets real personal. For a while he's just recounting the history of Israel, but then he turns it to the Sanhedrin, which is the council of the Jews, the religious leaders. And he turns to them and says this, verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who have received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Whoa. These are some severe, severe accusations here and allegations against them. Let's just stop again and feel the weight of this. Okay? Stephen is calling the religious leaders stiff-necked. Right? You saw my little son, Wesley. We, um, you know, you do tummy time with babies, right? You strengthen their muscles and things like that. Well, for a while, uh, you know, he, was, he loved to be on this side, you know? And then when you literally tried to turn his neck, it would not move. I could have used all my power and it would not move. And I was amazed. But it got me thinking of this. That's what he means by this. No matter what truth encounters you, religious leaders, you are unmoved. You're stuck in your ways. You're stuck in your own sin. He's saying that to them. He's saying this one really hurts for them. You are uncircumcised, which in their mind, that word means pagan, uncircumcised in your heart. He's saying you might be circumcised physically, so you might be looking like you're part of God's people, but in your heart, you're a pagan. Severe allegations here. Always resisting the Holy Spirit. He's saying you're against God's work. You think you're for God's work? You're against it. You're just like your forefathers, except worse. Because they killed the ones that told of Jesus coming. You killed Jesus when he came. And by the way, you who pride yourself in keeping the law, you don't keep it. Do you see how you can almost, I can smell the smoke from here, right? Of the fumes that are coming from them as they're hearing this, and let's see their response, if it differs at all from the response of the Jews in chapter 2. Let's read this. Verse 54, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Pause there for a second, just so we can understand the terms here. I think, you know, cut to the quick, some people already have an idea of what that means. The, the term literally means to saw in two, but, but saw in half, but it has something even deeper in mind. It has to do with cutting through what is dead to get to the living part that is sensitive and hurts. It, the best example of this is uh, imagine uh, something sharp being poked right under your fingernail. And you might say, ah, yes. This is the idea. It's you remove the hardened part, the fingernail, and get to the sensory spot where it hurts and sends shooting pain through your body. This is the term that's used here. They were filled with shooting pain. It was like a dagger in the heart. This is what it felt like to them. So much so, though, this is different than being pierced to the heart. It's a different word. And instead of resulting in some sort of godly sorrow, it results in anger, gnashing of teeth. Does anybody know where else gnashing of teeth is often referred to in the Bible? In hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, some people view hell like it might be these people in hell that are very sorry for what they've done and just wish they could be in heaven. 
It's not the way it's described. Gnashing of teeth has to do with anger, disrespect, hatred. They hate what God is doing to them. They hate God. But this is what he's saying here. Imagine the scene here. They've just been pierced with a spiritual dagger and they are filled with rage. This is not sorrow. This is rage. And normally where there's rage, there is action. Not good action normally. But as if that wasn't enough, Stephen goes on in verse 55 and he says, it says this, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I don't want to miss the weight of this because how they're about to respond, we'll see this in a second, I guess. I'll finish reading verse 56. He says, and behold, I see the heavens opened up and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. This is going to make them lose it. Because what he is saying is, just in case you don't believe me, I can see it right now that the one you killed is with God. Meaning he's on God's side, you're not on God's side. You see that? This is weighty and this is when they lose it. Verse 57 but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they, be, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Consider this. Consider the intensity and the, the fervor in which, uh, and the, all of the ways that they went about silencing the sin that they're being confronted with. Look at this in verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice. This is supposed to be childish. They cried out with a loud voice so that they could stop hearing it, right? You know the, the, the children that say, la, 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 right? I don't want to hear it. You know, if there's a spoiler, you don't want to hear a spoiler. You just start speaking so that you can't hear it. Uh, things like that. This is what, they didn't want to hear any more of it. Not only that, but they said, just in case my voice is not going to be loud enough, I'm going to cover my ears so that no truth gets in anymore. And not only that, but they rushed at him with one impulse. So they've stopped their senses, they've rushed, and they want to destroy the source of pain. They want to destroy the source of the one who's confronting them in their sin. And this term, rushed, it's used of the demon-possessed swine. You remember when Jesus cast out the, the demons and sent them into the swine and the swine ran off the cliff? It's the same word. It's also used in, as the same word for the angry mob in Ephesus. All of a sudden, these religious leaders that were supposed to be following the law turned into an angry mob. This whole group. This is what happens when you're blinded by sin. And so these people were so offended by the thought that they could be guilty that they wanted to stop the pain. They wanted to stop the source right then, right there. They couldn't even fathom the thought that they were guilty. Do you see how much pride is here? They couldn't even come to grips with the fact that they might be guilty. Instead, they shut it out. So I want you to consider your own heart again and your own life in this moment. It hurts to be confronted with sin, right? That's not the point. It's, it's, going to be, it's going to be painful when anytime you're confronted with sin. But where do you go after that? Does your pain lead you to a sorrow that you've offended the Most High God ultimately and offended whoever else it is? Or does it lead you to rage? And so I wanted to ask you, how have you responded with the truth that you're a sinner before God? Not only the truth that you're a sinner before God, but deserving of judgment. And if you don't repent, you will be in hell. What are you doing with that? 
being confronted with that? Have you, by God's grace, responded in humility and put your faith in Christ? I, I know many of you have. This is the church, I'm sure. But I'm not going to be so naive to think that everybody has done that. Perhaps some of you, when you're confronted with this truth of the Bible, say, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. That can't be me. I'm not going to think of myself as guilty before God. And you have an unrepentant heart. Maybe you don't seek to kill whoever's bringing you the truth. That's good. Maybe you don't take it that far. But maybe you're trying to eliminate every source of truth in your life. Do you notice, maybe look at your own hearts for a second. Do you notice yourself drawing towards the people of God or away? When the term discipleship is thrown out, where we want to make disciples, where we want to disciple you and you make disciples, and you think of this one-on-one -on -one discipleship, are you incredibly frightened by that for fear that sin might be exposed? Or are you drawing near, seeking to grow? Because oftentimes, even if you don't try to kill the source, you remove yourself far from it. You remove yourself from the preaching or don't listen or purposefully distract yourself. You remove yourself from God's people. You remove yourself from accountability. Consider those things. From a horizontal perspective with each other, how about when somebody confronts you in your sin or when your conscience pricks and it says you were wrong? How do you respond to that? Too often, and I've seen this in my own life, so this is not me just talking at you as if I haven't experienced this. I've noticed the depth of my own depravity in responding to sin this way. Do you, when you are confronted in your sin, respond in anger and attack the person that is bringing you the truth? Whether it be a pastor or a friend or your spouse or an additional family member, do you find yourself saying something like this? How dare you talk to me about my sin when you do this? Or you don't have a right to talk to me about this. Look at your life. Or you look at the weakness that you have. Or you maybe say, okay, Mr. Perfect, don't we all... Apparently you don't make any mistakes ever in your life. You belittle it. You downplay this. Do you assume that you are in the right all the time. Because certainly if we're, if we're considering our track record, we have no reason to assume we're in the right. In fact, we have the opposite. We should probably assume we're in the wrong and then try to see if we're actually in the right. We're sinners. Do you just assume, do you go into it saying, I can't possibly be guilty of this? Do you refuse to listen and acknowledge that sin has been done? Maybe you justify things in your own mind and say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I responded that way. I'm just tired. The whole, I'm sorry, but it's just this. Is that true repentance? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, for offending you. It's just my sin nature. I didn't really have a choice. You think that's going to fly? No. I'm sorry I was tired. I'm sorry I just misunderstood what you said. That doesn't excuse sin. I look at my own life and I see that there are times where we respond poorly. But how should we respond? Humbly. Acknowledging guilt. Quick to seek reconciliation. Not quick to defend because the whole idea of, and I mean, let me just have you raise your hand if you've ever stubbed your toe before. Raise your hand if that has ever happened to you, okay? This idea of being cut to the quick, it's supposed to have this idea of intense pain that causes itself to lash out in anger. Oh, stubbing my toe is the worst. I have been angry at my couch more, the, the couch leg. I have a deep abiding hatred for it because of 
stubbing my toe on this, right? And normally when that happens, you know what I mean. Don't act like you're holier than me, okay? You know what I mean. When something hurts, you immediately get defensive, right? There's a pine cone that fell out of the, my tree in the backyard the, <laughs> a while ago. I'm like, what was that? You're just on the alert. You're on the defensive. You feel attacked. Well, should that be our response with sin? I don't think so. We shouldn't be quick to justify our actions. Because, oh, our hearts will find justifications for anything, won't they? You might be walking down a road that you know is sinful, but you creep closer and closer and closer because your mind justifies it slowly, right? It's a slow drip. Don't do that. Because justifying your sin will lead to death. Do you become furious when someone dares to point out something that you are lacking in? Again, maybe you don't physically attack them, but maybe you go away from that conversation and you hold bitterness in your heart towards them. Your relationship is all of a sudden severed because how dare they confront me in my sin. You know how many times the scriptures speak about it being a loving thing to stop your brother who's in sin? It is good. We should desire that, although it is painful. Right? Has this ever happened to you and your family, maybe before, where uh, you've spoken to a family member about Christ? Um, and after you share the gospel with them, all of a sudden they're completely distanced from you. And they don't really want to talk to you anymore because you're the gospel guy or you're the gospel girl that's going to bring, uh, bring the truth to them. And they don't want their sin exposed, so they'd rather just not have a relationship with you. Maybe you've experienced that in your own family life. But if you, if you respond like these religious leaders, you don't respond rightly. You assume yourself to be righteous, not guilty. You lash out in anger in your own pride. Third passage, Acts 5. So flip back. We've kind of gone back, then forward, then back again. Acts 5 Peter and the apostles were just put in jail because of their works. They were, um, the, the high priest, along with the Sanhedrin, put them in jail. Uh, they just wanted them to stop what they were doing, stop preaching the name of Christ, etc., etc. They're led out by an angel, and they start teaching again. Then, finally, they're brought before the Sanhedrin once again, and this is where we pick up in verse 27. It says this, When they had brought them, they stood, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Once again, you see these religious leaders confronted with this reality that they claim to be following God and they're actually against him. This is not a foreign idea, right? Saul, who turns into Paul, says the very same thing. I thought in my, um, in my zeal I was working for God, but I was working against him. Praise God for his salvation, but this is a different story. We see here, once again, they are the ones that put him to death. They're confronted with sin. Let's see how they respond. Maybe there's hope for the religious leaders. Let's see. Verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. This is the same word as, as chapter 7. And intended to kill them. Same word, same pain, same frustration, same... They were about to end in the same way. 
They're about to kill them. They intended to do so. But notice in verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Essentially, Gamaliel's saying, hey, there's been people who rose up before and gained a following. When they die, it's all over. Verse 38. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Verse 40, they took his advice, apparently not too much, because that's about what we were about to read. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So this is a subtle difference, and I just thought maybe it would be applicable to those who are in the church. And when I say in the church, I I don't necessarily mean those of faith, because we don't know exactly, only you know your own hearts, but those who are in this church community, who regularly attend church. This is a little bit different. You see, when they're confronted with sin, it's still painful, still elicits the same response, and yet good counsel restrains them. Gamaliel's counsel restrains them from acting on their unrepentant heart. And the temptation is to say, oh, well, that's good. That's a better scenario than what happened to Stephen. But I fear that sometimes restraint often masks unrepentant hearts. Meaning, what I mean by this is just as we examine this, you know, in this scenario, God, uh, it, the counsel of Gamaliel restrained them from acting on their desires of their unrepentant heart. Could it be the same case for you in this room? Again, I don't know who it is, but it could be. Perhaps you've heard good counsel from the word that keeps you from fully acting on your unrepentant heart, and so you think you're okay. But you aren't really sorrowful for your sin. You know that you have an unrepentant heart. Could this be the case? Certainly it could. Perhaps you've been restrained by something external. Maybe it's your family. Would you go to, your church, go to church if your family didn't come? or friends, or just what the church thinks about you. Sometimes external restraints mask your unrepentantness. And so I want to ask you, when you're confronted with sin, of course, primarily to God, do you turn in repentance or do you get on the defensive and do everything you can to prove your innocence Now, often this doesn't happen as a physical conversation, right, or an actual conversation with God. I don't mean that you're standing before God trying to prove your innocence. But we do this in a variety of ways, whether that be slowly searing the conscience by justifying your own sin. Only you know. Are you right with the Lord, and do you see the great offense of sin? I think we should ask that. And if by God's grace you are right with the Lord, praise him. Because you have heeded the counsel of Peter in chapter 2, which says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Praise the Lord for that. If you have repented and you see, by God's grace, the right reaction to being confronted with sin growing in you, praise the Lord. But perhaps... It might seem like you've repented, but in your own heart, you know you're not really sorrowful. You're just restrained by external sources. So as we conclude, I want to mention a few things. 
And again, this is an exhortation to myself because that's where this originated from. As Pastor Scott often says, the, you know, the best, uh, the best times in the Word are when it really speaks to you and then you just get to share how you've been pummeled, right? If you find yourself often responding to being confronted with sin inappropriately, meaning if you find yourself often on the defensive, often justifying your sin, often easing your conscience by these false justifications, repent now. You will not like where that leads. Perhaps you are seeing an unhealthy pattern develop in your life where you see over and over again, I see myself growing more and more defensive. And this is where it's going to be hard. And I want to encourage you because sometimes we're not always self-aware. I know, shocking, right? We're not always self-aware. I want, you, I want to encourage you to ask your spouse. When they mention sin in your life, how do you respond? Not the way you think you respond. That's going to be hard, but I think it's going to be worthwhile. Because when you know the areas that you're failing, you can be made right. Perhaps you have, maybe there's some in this room who have never repented of their sins before. I, I implore you to do it. There is forgiveness in Christ. Do you realize that? This is the hope. This is not just meant to be, uh, you know, whoa, this is really heavy. This is talking about being confronted with sin. Being confronted with sin is a glorious thing because it pushes you to the Savior. If you were never confronted with sin from the Word or from somebody in your life showing you the truth of Scripture, you would never run to God. We don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I feel sinful all of a sudden. I think I should turn to God. No. God uses people. God uses the word to confront you so you can turn and live. You know, the Jews who were guilty of killing the Messiah, they were forgiven. You know, often we read the, the passage where Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners. And we take that title and put it on ourselves when we feel really bad about our sin. At least I've done that before, where I say, I feel like the chief of sinners. That's not really what Paul meant. It, we're not meant to rob that title from him. What Paul truly believed was, I am the greatest of sinners because I killed Christians. I mean, we just read about him standing by while Stephen was murdered. You read right after that how he ravages the church. And yet, it pleased God to show his forgiveness to him. So, why not you, is what I'm asking. You might think that you're the worst sinner in this room. Maybe that's the case. Do you really believe your sin is greater than the forgiveness of Christ? And I've spoke of this before, but I think that sadly, that might have been what Judas thought. I think that Judas might have thought there's no coming back from this. And he killed himself. That's not the God of the Bible. There is forgiveness offered to you as long as you draw breath. So what are we to do? How are we supposed to grow in this? Maybe you, your own sin has been exposed. I know mine has. We ought to be quick to acknowledge guilt and seek reconciliation. That has to do in your marriage. That has to do with your children. That has to do with your friends, extended family, people in the church, and most importantly, to God. We ought to be quick to repent because when we repent, we find forgiveness. That is a beautiful thing. If you've repented and put your faith in Christ, when he looks at you, do you realize what he sees? 
Do you realize what he sees? He sees perfection. He sees you spotless. Not because of what you done, you've done, but because of what he did. That offer is for you if you don't know him. And if you know him, praise the Lord, then we should be quick to ask for forgiveness because we know the depth of our sin, right? I want to read this as we close. This will be the, the final two verses. I want us to turn back to Acts 2. It's fitting to end with Scripture being read. Not my words, but the words of God. Verse 38 and 39 in Acts 2 says this, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 39, he says, For the promise, this is a promise to you, is for you and your children and, who, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. In this context, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. He's saying, guess what? This salvation is not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile as well. And it's for as many as, call, as who call on Christ. That is the promise for you even now. And again, if you have already received Christ, praise the Lord, let us be quick Let's keep short accounts and be quick to repent and be made right with man and, most importantly, God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness in exposing our sin. Because even though it's painful and it hurts, you do so to bring us to repentance. Lord, if we were not confronted in our sin, we would have never run to you. Help us to see it as a kindness when those around us who love us expose sin in our lives. And Lord, when we are called to expose sin in another's lives, let us do it with humility and love. Lord, I thank you that you are so quick to forgive us. Even though we sin again and again and again, Lord, you are so quick to make us right. Let us be quick to make things right with others. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. And if there are those in this room that do not know you, please let them not wait another day. Let them not go on thinking that tomorrow is the day. Let them know that today is the day to be made right. And help us, Lord, in this endeavor. We need your spirit. It does not come natural to us. Help us to quickly seek reconciliation when we have sin exposed. It's in your name we pray. Amen.